Hey everybody, welcome back to The Hustle. It's John Lamoureux. All right, I'm super, super excited for this guest. I've wanted to have him on here for years. It is the most wonderful, great, excellent Midger. I think everybody out there loves loves Midge. I'm guessing everybody who listens to this podcast anyway knows and loves Midge. And because of that, I will just be totally upfront with you. I tried my best not to go down some of the same roads that he's probably been down a million times. Yes, he was a member of Visage, Slick, Rich Kids, Ultravox, Thin Lizzy, and his solo work. That's a ton. And I'm sure that he's been asked a million times, how did you handle it all? And all that kind of stuff. And I purposely tried not to do that. In fact, for better or worse, we didn't even talk about Live Aid or Band Aid because I figure there's movies made about that stuff. There's been numerous docs. You know, so what what am I going to ask him that he hasn't been asked before? So I try to go down some other roads here. Um, In the last few years, uh, I think it was 2014, he put out a new album called Fragile that's really beautiful. A couple years ago, he put put out an album called Orchestrated that is, as it sounds, orchestrated versions of his great hits, which is also beautiful. And this week, in fact, maybe even today, He's kicking off an American tour called Unzoomed and Face to Face, which I think is like just him acoustically. I didn't know about it when we did this interview, but it's on all of his socials now. So I would encourage you to do that. Early next year, he's starting another uh, tour, Voice and Vision, I believe, and that one is starting in Europe. So anyway, Midge, thankfully, after the pandemic, is getting back to business, back to what he does best. So we talk a lot about his solo work. We talk about some of these ups and downs. Um, I ask him about a lot of those bands, but not, not uh, hopefully in in new ways. I hope anyway. That's always my hope when I do these. I love Midge. He's always so gracious when he goes on other podcasts. That's another reason. I figure he's he's one of the best guests there is on every other podcast. So let's see if we can do something a little different. I hope you enjoy this. I love Midge. He means a lot to me and my family. And I explain why here at the beginning of the interview. I don't remember where he called me from. I think he might live in Bath in England, but I'm not 100% sure. Anyway, love this guy. Okay, so for starters, I have to tell you, Mitch, you uh, hold a very special place in my family's heart. And here's why. So 1991... I may, I just graduated from high school and my family moves from Salt Lake City, Utah to Cambridge, England. And um, I'm enrolled in sixth form college and I come home one day from school 
And uh, my mom, bless her heart, my mom's the greatest. She has always tried to make it a point to take interest in the things that the kids are into. And I've been a muso my whole life. So she is always, you know, listening in for new things and asking if I like certain artists. That day, apparently on the BBC, you were on there talking about Pure. And uh, she said, John, have you heard of Midjure? And I said, well, yeah, I have. At this point, all I knew, I didn't know Ultravox. I mean, I knew who they were, but I didn't know the connection. I didn't know, unfortunately, you had anything to do with Band-Aid because over here it was all Geldof. But I had loved Dear God. I had heard that a couple of years prior. And I was like, oh, yeah, he has this great song, Dear God. I love that. She said, well, they played Cold, Cold Heart today. And it was so good. And you've, you would love it. You've got to seek this out. From then on, any other time in my life, uh, whenever I buy a mid-year CD, whenever I see you in concert, whenever I interview you for a podcast, I always have to tell my mom because she has taken an interest in you ever since that day in 1991, <laughs> hearing Cold, Cold Heart. And so she that's just wanted me to tell you she loves your voice. Well, that, it, I, listen, I owe her one. That's fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that wild? And so you've just been a special, you know, 10 years ago. Let's see. She bought me your book for Christmas, which I tell everybody who will listen. I've mentioned it on here several times. I think it's one of the best rock bios out there. And the reason I say that is because I feel like you answered honestly, which is the difference, the key difference here. You answered honestly any question anyone would have for you. And that's not always the case. A lot of these guys are trying to protect themselves or maybe they're newly sober. So they don't want to talk about kind of the crazy days, but you just were very upfront and honest about where you stood on everything. And I just think that's one of the best, if I was, is what it's called. One of the best rock bios there's ever been. So thank you again for that. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Now I read that years ago, so I don't remember everything. I just remember some details. And one of the details that I took from that, if I remember correctly, you said, playing like 80s nostalgia shows was not your thing but these days that's what a lot of people do and i saw you in salt lake city on the retro futura tour with tom and howard a few years ago Mm -hmm. and um 
who would have known that in this day and age, one of the best ways to pay your bills and connect with fans would be to do that kind of thing, right? Absolutely. And it's, it's fun. I, I, I actually heard, um, it was Phil Oakey I'd seen been interviewed and he, he talked about uh, doing those kind of 80s festivals. And he said, you know, I don't really want to do them. He said, but there, there are no record labels to go and give you uh, an advance to make a new album. So he said, what we do is we we do a few of those festivals uh, and they're, they're fine. They're just not what we choose to do. You'd rather go out and play your new material, of course. Um, he said, but it enables us, it gives us the wherewithal to go and, and record something new. So the old stuff pays for the new stuff. Yeah. And I just that made perfect sense to me that that instead of a you know, a, a label having to go cap in hand and say, please, sir, you know, I've got an idea. Can you give me some of my money that I might earn? And so I can go and realize this idea. Yeah. Uh, so um, it just seemed to make perfect sense. And also, who knew that those songs would still be popular so that people would still want to hear them? Yeah. You know, pe- people my age never went to festivals <laughs> when, I, when uh-huh. I was a kid. Right. <laughs> people my age went to see Frank Sinatra if they were lucky, you know, or, right. or whatever. Right. Yeah, that's uh, and I'm so glad you did. In fact, we, as I mentioned, I saw you on the. I've seen you three or four times. Um, the first time I think was on that Retro Futura tour, and I remember you came out and played three songs, and I was so disappointed that it was only the three. But um, I've caught you a few other times, including most recently was with Paul Young on that tour. I live in Denver, and thankfully right. you stop in Denver at various state places yep. whenever you come through. And um, I just thought that was one of the most perfect double bills to have you and Paul out there, who I'd never seen before. I had never seen Paul. When you go out, how much of your time spent now is on the road? I mean, it's got to be a little bit of a grind, but but you connect with your fans so perfectly. Uh, well, I've, I, you know, I, I was performing live before it was allowed anywhere near a, a studio. So performance to me is it came first you know long before uh, you know been able to make a record in fact it was it was me who talked paul into coming out for that tour because he hadn't toured in in the states for many many years and uh and i said well this is how i do it you know this is you know i know great musicians out there we don't have to bring your band out in the uk and you know, you put a band together in, in America. Once you know one great musician, he knows other great musicians. Right. And you just have to find the ones that you can live with for the next six weeks or whatever. Mm-hmm. So I talked him into coming out to doing it. And it was great for him. It was really good that people got to see him. So for me, this past 20 months to two years mm-hmm. has been like having my arm chopped off uh, because touring is second nature. You know, live performance is absolute second nature. It's like breathing to me. I don't have to think about it. I just do it. Uh, so a good 50% of my life since I was 18 has been taken up with, with traveling the world performing. Uh, and to have that kind of taken away from you uh, has been a bit of an, an abrupt halt. Yeah. Uh, and I found myself kind of twiddling my thumbs wondering you know will this ever come back again mm-hmm. so the idea of coming out to do the current tour in, in the u.s is uberly exciting it's great yeah so you i i haven't seen or heard i don't know for sure are you about to embark on another tour have things opened yeah, up um, enough for you to do this that will, this will be the first tour that i'll have done since the start of the pandemic uh i was in new zealand 
uh, with my band uh, doing what I called the 1980 tour, which was the entire VN album, uh, the Ultravox's VN album, and a good chunk of the first Visage album, which both came out in 1980. Mm-hmm. So well, I was in New Zealand when we heard about the virus. Uh, the day we left New Zealand to fly to Australia to pick up the tour there and finish the tour in Australia, uh, New Zealand closed its doors. That was uh, that was a year ago in March. Uh, so they were way ahead of the curve. Yeah. Uh, we managed to get through most of Australia and get home, which was the big key worry. You know, what, what, we couldn't be any further away from home than if we had tried. Mm-hmm. Uh, so getting home uh, and then finding that this wasn't just going to be you know, a, a hiccup uh, that, that this this lockdown was going to last a long time. Yeah, uh, there was a was a bit of a realization that um, that we we wouldn't be able to go on tour. So yes, uh, I'm 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 coming back to the, uh, the US uh, armed with just my acoustic guitar, uh, you know, and and go out there and do my thing. Good, that's great. I can't wait. I can't wait to see. I think I've seen you come through the soil dove underground uh is the name of the place that you play in denver sometimes and i saw one of those uh, acoustic tours it's just lovely and whenever you tell the stories behind the songs in fact <laughs> if i remember correctly whenever you play vienna and i was thinking about this earlier because i was listening back to it again i wonder if you are ever angry at your younger self for recording those soaring choruses that you in your 60s or 70s or whatever has to <laughs> has to perform on a regular basis Uh, well, it's it's it, that's just about every song, though. I mean, because <laughs> all the songs you, you push yourself because there's something about hitting those high notes when you're young yeah. is great, but then when you put them back to back for ninety minutes, that's that's a tall. Yes. That's like running up Kilimanjaro. That's, exactly. that's hard work. Yeah, I was listening to the orchestrated album, and uh, it's so great. And I was curious, you know, again going back to some of your com- comrades. Wang Chung, Cutting Crew, Moby, I think they've all gone to Prague and gotten this Prague orchestra uh, involved in recreating. Their, is that what you did for Orchestrated? No, not, not, not necessarily. I mean, I, 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 it became very apparent over the years that everything I seem to write uh, is like a mini film soundtrack. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's very cinematic. It's, there's a there's a an there's atmospherics to it, or a, or a kind of pomposity, or or whatever. 
So the idea of doing orchestrated versions of those things just appealed. You know, I, I'll never, to this day, I will never understand why Ultravox were never asked to do film soundtrack music because they were just they were perfect for it. They were. Um, whether whether we could have done it as a as a as a unit or not without fighting about things, I don't know. But uh, musically, it would have been perfect. So for me, it was just a, a, the idea of going back and seeing what you could do with synthesized music, not using synthesizers. Uh, and it still had the power uh, of everything that you'd try and get a rock band to do. We had this orchestra pumping. It sounded fantastic. It you listen to uh, the orchestral version of him. Uh, oh. The end of it is just <laughs> ridiculous. It's just, yes. it's just so powerful. It's great. I, I love it. And you talking about it. I'm glad you mentioned this because I was going to bring it up too. your solo work, especially uh, there's almost sort of a I don't know, somber tone is the right word, but there's, there's kind of a heaviness and you talking about making synthesized music without synthesizers, fragile breathe. I would say a lot of your albums have that sort of style to them. It's almost like you wanting to expand. Do you, do you save, bigger uh, topics or grander scope or epic natures for your solo work? What, why is it, oh, why, do you, why do you seek to accomplish those grand sounds so often in your solo work? I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure that there's a, there's a desire to do that. I have to say, I think, I think the solo stuff, uh, obviously for the last, you know, 25 years, I've done more solo stuff than I've done with, with a band. The, the, the Ultravox, when I joined Ultravox at first in 1979, that was me, that was my fledgling baby footsteps into songwriting. Uh, so it was all young and naive and youthful and, uh, and, and, and and trying to find your way in the world. And then when you leave that and you become an I or a me uh, instead of an us or a we, you have to find your own roots. And that takes a while. And then you're, you're kind of left without the help of other bandmates when it comes to creating something or the restrictions of other bandmates when you're coming to uh, create something. So you're out there swimming in this big sea of possible creativity and you're not sure where it's taking you. And I've always said 
And I think as a songwriter, you forget the production side of things because that's that's a massive amount to do with with the the atmosphere that's created when you're making music anyway. Uh, but the actual songwriting itself, I've always claimed that there's, there are many, many, many great subjects out there that songs can and should be written about, not just about relationships, not just about love, not just about trucking down the highway. You know, all of the all of the cliched stuff that we've 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 had for years and years and years since the day we were born and, and way before. But there, there are subject matters that that deserve a look at. You can write a song about anything. Um, and it's how that song becomes palatable to someone else. And 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 most times people will read their own story into the song. You know, they they they'll tell you what you've written the song about. And 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 you you normally just go, yeah, okay, if that's if that's <laughs> If that works for you, that's fine. But right. yeah, I'm not right. gonna I'm not gonna put a, a wet towel over your ideas yeah. of what the song's all about by telling you what I wrote it about. Yeah, you know. So it's uh, it's a very personal thing, uh, and it's yeah. the songwriting I think that's changed over the years. Yeah, I would agree. Um, I wanted to ask you specifically about a few of your songs. First of all, I feel like you could almost I feel like the song "Brother and Sister" deserve its own hour. People involved. I mean, you've got Mark King on bass. You've got Kate Bush, who no one's, everyone loves, and no one hears from enough these days. You've yeah. got the Campbell brothers from UB40 on there. What is the story of brother and sister? How did you create this? Did how did you get all these people to sign on? Did it did it achieve your vision? What's the story? Well, uh, the song when I was writing it uh, uh, was was obvious. It it, it it screamed to be a duet. It's just about sexual equality. Um, I, I, long before anyone ever wrote about about that stuff. It, again, it seems like a strange, uh, you know, a, a strange subject matter. But every subject matters game when it when it comes to um, songwriting. So the idea of of a brother uh, or a, a man and woman talking up talking about each other not in a romantic way, but talking about them as as equals in in you know, in a world, 
you know, sister, I'm equal to, you know, all a man can do. You know, that's what she's singing to the guy. Yeah. You know, and you're saying to her, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. I get it. You can do things that I could never do. So that kind of equal platform thing was great. I was doing a Prince's Trust uh, concert uh, with Kate uh, many, many, many years ago. And I was in the middle of that album and I, I told her about the song. And she said, oh, I'd love to hear it. And I played it to her and she she fell in love with it. And, and the sad part is that I never got to see her sing the vocal. I never got to, I never got to see it because I sent the big multi-track tape to her studio. Yeah. Uh, and she was in the middle of her album. And I thought, well, I, I won't hear anything for months yet. You know, because you know, she'll just, when she's got, hit, hits a, a you know, a, uh, you know, a, a bit of an impasse or whatever with her own record, she might do something on mine. Yeah. And she called up two days later and said, well, I've, I've done it. Do you want to come and hear what I've done? And I walked into the studio and I heard Kate singing my song and I was standing with tears in my eyes. It was just, okay. it was just so unbelievably moving. She'd obviously spent a couple of solid days doing all these multi-track backing vocals and wow. she'd she had Kate Bushed it. You yeah, know? Yeah. Had, and it was it was fantastic. And once you've got Kate on something like that, um again, you're getting the, the Campbell brothers was was kind of kind of easy. They yeah. they were just such easygoing guys. They just I wanted their harmonies. They've got a very unique yes. brotherly yeah. yes. harmony thing they do that only you know tight relationships can can give you. Yes. So yeah. I've had Robin on here a couple of times. I love them. I, I wish they could find a way to to sort everything out in their band. Yeah. It's sad that it is the way it is. Okay, going back to, you know, again, talking about things that deserve their own hour. I mean, each band that you were in <laughs> back in the day is its own story. But I was curious, when you are kind of bopping from Slick to Rich Kids to Massage to Thin Lizzy to Ultravox to... Are you doing that because is one of the motivations for that you trying to find a sound? Do you have a sound in your head? Because and the reason I'm asking is because my understanding is that a lot of the reasons that you left Rich Kids was because you had gotten a synthesizer and wanted to incorporate that into the sound, and the other guys wanted to stick to more punky power pop. And I wondered if this these steps along the way for you are you seeking a sound in your head and finding the right chemistry the right people the right audience to embrace that sound i think it's i think it's a, a nice idea but the reality is uh, a lot of it is is um kind of wandering blindly <laughs> through mm -hmm. through life you have you have to think no no one no one comes out you know fully fully formed uh, and, and is able to write a book or you know direct a great movie you know straight off the bat you know you have to you have to write a few lemons you have to you know, learn. There's no, there's no school to to learn how to do what it is you you think you're you might be interested in doing. Uh, you have to kind of start off by, you know, being inspired by other artists. So initial songs that anyone will write, they'll be inspired by. They'll sound exactly like whoever you're listening to, because that's how you learn how to write songs. And eventually, you catch up and you you start doing your own thing, and it starts to sound like you. It develops. Well, all of those things that you just mentioned, you know, slick to the rich kids, it's a development. Um, you know, you're, you're allowed to move a little bit closer towards whatever it is you're aiming to, to find. The synthesizer itself just fascinated me. I mean, an instrument that was as limited as your imagination, that's unheard of. I'm a guitar player. You know, uh, that's, that's what I do. Keyboards, I'm a rubbish keyboard player. 
but I can make synthesizers do what I need them to do. Yeah. And I can create, you know, musical landscapes using those tools. It's just that in 1978, uh, the band I was in wasn't interested in having that thing, except for Rusty, the drummer, of course, yeah. who I set up Visage with. Sure. Uh, so I I was following a, a weird path that that only only I could see. Uh, and it was by chance that uh, through working on the Visage project, I saw Ultravox in their form at the time, go off to America and come back a broken band, come back without the singer and the guitarist. And, and it was just, <laughs> for, for, in a very selfish way, it was perfect timing for me. Uh, there was a band who already used electronics, but they also used violins and they used you know acoustic drums and they used rock instrumentation and whatever and there was me looking for a band to that would make the noise that i had in my head that yeah. i wanted to do yeah. so it was kind of synchronicity so irrespective of what plan you may have life gets in the way uh and sometimes it gets in the way in a good way yeah yeah when you um was there any hesitation when you joined ultravox i've always been curious if because it, it becomes, like you were saying just now, it becomes your vision. It becomes about the music you have in your head. Is there any pushback on that? Are the other guys okay with this? I mean, they've just been in a band with John Fox, and he's going one direction, and you see an opportunity to kind of lead them in another way. Are they, are they embracing you and saying, yes, just we'll do whatever you want. We need a leader. You're our yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't like that at all. Um, you know, I was, I was the new kid in the block. So I was, I was walking into an, an already established unit who knew infinitely more about synthesizers and what they could do and, 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 you know, operating them and, uh, th than I did. So I was, I was learning from those guys. And for those first few years for us to, to, to come together uh, in, in a very short space of time and craft the Vienna album was quite spectacular. I mean, the, the Vienna uh, was, what, two years after, you know, I was in, in Slick, which, were, which was like a, a Bass City Rollers type, you know, bubblegum yeah. band. So two years down the line, I'd, I'd done my Rich Kids thing, I'd embraced the synthesizer, and I'd found a band 
who who created what is now kind of seen as a classic in some some terms. Um, and that's a very short and very fast learning curve. Yeah. But I was young, like a sponge. I was just, I was soaking all this stuff right, up, thinking, right, right. this is wonderful. Someone's given me the, you know, the, the tools to the toy cupboard. And I, yeah. I can go in there and, and make these things mm-hmm. without wondering, without wondering if it's going to be commercially successful. You know, we were making music that was musically successful. Mm-hmm. And the commercially successful bit came yeah. by chance. You yeah. know, you can't sculpt that. You can't make that. It's amazing. Um, when I listen back, did these shows, it seemed to me before the pandemic, I hope I have my timeline right, that you were going to... Oh, I get mine on- wrong all the time. I wouldn't okay. worry about it. <laughs> okay. Well, because it was, you had, I think, announced that you were going to be doing, and I don't remember the exact name, but they were like electronic shows and guitar shows. Is that right? It, do I have this right? Or was it just the electronic? It was probably um, uh, electronic. We we had just, uh, as I said, we we just finished the 1980 tour, yeah, and uh, we were gearing up to do what we called the Voice and Visions tour, okay, which was the next two Ultravox albums. So it was going to be um, Rage in Eden and Quartet, mm-hmm. uh, and we had that all lined up, and of course, yes. lockdown, and that's been postponed to um, spring of next year. Okay, uh, so that that was what we'd lined up. Okay. The reason I was prefacing my question with that is because the beauty of so much of what you do, especially back then, was this integration of synths and heavy guitars or heavier guitars than you're going to get on a Human League album or yep. an ABC album or something. And uh, like, for instance, New Europeans, I always think of as this perfect mixture of the two. Some of the songs have the heavier guitar kind of, you know, mixed down a little bit, but that one's got them both line by line. Do you prefer when you write, you were just saying you're not a very good synthesizer player. Do you write on a, on one or the other? Do you always write on a guitar? How does it begin? Oh, I always, always write on a keyboard funnily enough. And I think there's there's something to do with the fact that it's, um, you know, I'm, I'm, as I said, I'm, I'm not skilled on the keyboard at all, but because you're writing with something that has instant atmospherics. Mm. Uh, you know, if I played the same chord sequence on a, on a, on a guitar as I'm playing on a keyboard, it it just sounds like something I've done a million times before. 
unless I'm doing something that's a, a riff-led thing and you've written a riff on the guitar and whatever, and that's, that's leading the song, yeah. you know, like All Stood Still or something like yeah. that. I sit here and I play three or four chords on a keyboard with a with a textural ambient sound that instantly creates pictures in my head. Uh, it's, it gives me a vision. It's like a movie. It's it's already started running, you yeah. know. And I don't know where that movie is going to take me. I don't know what the script is, and I don't know you know where the direction's going. But but slowly but surely, with in conjunction with the computer and the sequencer and some of the electronics I've got around here, I start creating. A music bed for the song. I start making this ambient background for the seed of an idea. I might only have a title or I might have an idea of what the song is trying to say or going to say. I just haven't written it yet. Yeah. But here is this foundation for this seed of an idea just to grow. And it's so much easier doing that for me anyway, uh, on a keyboard, playing the same half dozen chords or whatever that I would normally play just to get that sound and get that picture running in my head sure sure um speaking of songs and cinematic and all that kind of stuff you do you have a lot of covers in your uh repertoire and one of them that i find so interesting is the living in the past cover from jethro <laughs> toll What sparked? What sparked that? I love Jethro Tull. I've had Ian on here three times. Yeah. I'm a huge fan, but I always thought that was just the oddest pairing, and yet it works. So what yeah. made you think you could do that? When I was a 16-year-old youth 
going to having having left school because school wouldn't teach me music. Uh, there was nothing nothing that that kept me interested in school at all. I left school at fifteen, and I went to a technical college with a view to becoming a you know a mechanical engineer or something. And I had to do six months at college. And I remember this was the, just at the time when living in the past uh, was being played on the radio. So 68 or 69 or something, whatever whatever year it was. And it was one of the outstanding tracks. I was a, a blossoming guitar player. Um, and there was this, this track by this kind of, you know, prog rock band. In, in seven eight timing, it was just it, it's just it was so bizarre to hear this on on national radio. Uh, that song in the still UK. has a vibe that you don't hear anywhere else, even to this oh, day. Oh no, it doesn't it, even it's, sound it's, like the rest of like, Jethro Tull. It's like it's like nothing. It's like nothing else. Yeah. Uh, yeah, nothing else that was in the charts at the time. So it stood out uh, a huge amount. It was when it was when radio here in the UK would play. A good variety of things. You could hear that. You could hear David Bowie's Space Oddity. Right. You know, it's tracks that would normally never be on the radio. Yeah. Um, and and the song just stuck with me. And when I was working on uh, the, um, the the first album, The Gift, uh, it was just one of those things. I thought, wouldn't it be fun trying this and just see how I could change that and not make it this prog rock thing, but do it with synthesizers and and guitar. So yeah. it was the same combination of instrumentation that I was doing with with Ultravox, but in a much lighter way. Yeah, yeah. It's so great. It's such an imaginative cover that you wouldn't expect. Um, another period of your career that I want to ask you about was the Breathe era, because I've seen you, maybe it was in your book, I don't remember, um, you saying that that was a particularly kind of a sad period for you. I, I don't know if it's because you felt like you had really high hopes for that album and it didn't quite achieve what you had hoped, the Swatch commercial comes along and kind of saves that, you know, single and it becomes uh, something that I, I would imagine you could still play today. With every waking breath I breathe, I see what life has dealt to me. With every sadness I deny, I feel a chance inside me die give me a taste of something new to touch to hold to pull me through send me a guiding light that shines across this darkened life of mine What was your feelings? What was what was going on with you during the Breathe era? Well, there were a lot of things happen, and and it's it sounds like an age old artist gripe, you know, blaming everything else around you for for your lack of commercial success. Right. But if you make a, a an absolute stance on uh, not using the tools that are available for you at that moment in time to achieve commercial success, and that you have to you have to stand by your decision. And I 
I was being bombarded with requests to have DJs remix tracks because that's that was currently fashionable. And I kept saying no. I said, there's no point me spending months and months and months and years, you know, in the studio sculpting something to get it the way I want it and then hand it to someone who absolutely ruins it in in my eyes. So I chose not to do that. So you kind of close off an awful lot of avenues uh, as to how this this how this new new piece of music can get out. Um, and you have to be able to stand by that and go, okay, well, it was my decision not to go down there. I really didn't want to do that, so I've stuck with this. But it still irks somewhat when you've spent years putting a piece of music together that you know no one is ever going to hear. And you you get depressed about it. It's a, it's a depressing thought, you know, even though it's maybe self-inflicted to a certain degree. And that's how I felt about Breathe. You know, two years after its release, uh, it had never been played on the radio. And then, of course, the Swatch thing came along and they, they used a snippet of Breathe, which was fine because they, they had a, a beautifully shot film and adverts that didn't advertise anything until until the very last second and it showed you this watch, you know. And, and they used it beautifully. And, of course, radio stations started being bombarded with people saying, what is this piece of music? And it transpires that most of the radio stations had been serviced with the album two years before and never played it. So it, it kind of made it made the whole way our industry yeah. uh, presents music to an audience a bit of a farce. Yeah. Uh, and that became, even though it was then commercially successful, it became even more depressing that that's, yes. that's how the machine works. Yeah. And if you play the mach- if you play uh, not very good music, uh, the right way you can have commercial success mm-hmm. uh, but I'm not interested in that I, I want to get the music right I figured out that the, the the only critics that matter the only critics that really matter are your family are your children uh, that when you're dead and gone they can turn around to other people and say that was the best he could have done at that moment in time yeah. and that's yeah. it that's it nothing else matters you know I and agree. that's that's my that's my goal in life. I agree. I'm proud to say I bought Breathe on your name alone. I didn't know anything about a commercial, and I don't think I ever saw it in the states anyway. I just knew that I loved Midjur, and so I bought Breathe uh, sitting there in my record store that one day, and I liked that album a lot. We lost Patty Maloney recently. I meant to check the liner notes of Breathe I, before, and I forgot. I don't know if he's playing on it, but I'm imagining. I know you guys have played, you have played with the Chieftains. You probably go way back with Patty. Do you have any memories of that? Because I'm getting goosebumps just thinking about it. Losing Patty, you feel like you've, like we've lost something that really is important. Oh, and we have. never be replicated again. We have. Um, I, I, I think it, Patty was more than just a pipe player or, you know, playing a, a whistle or whatever. He, he was, um, he was an alchemist. You know, he took, he took, very very ordinary musicians and, and put them together in the chieftains and turned them into something extraordinary that that the chieftains could tour uh, anywhere in the world uh, as kind of ambassadors for the country that's it you yes. know so 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 they they could they could play in in china or they could tour america or you know you get to you get to canada and all the scots would come out and watch them and you know and it was there was something really special, and Paddy was the driving force behind it, not not, not detracting from anyone else in the Chieftains because they were all 
superlative musicians. They, they were all way above and beyond anything I could ever hope to achieve. But he made them this this collective unit. Uh, and and that's what might never happen again. There are many, many, many great Irish pipe players, great Irish musicians, young people coming up. And that 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 tradition and that music will will carry on. Yeah. But for that one moment in time, Paddy managed to bring uh, Celtic traditional music to the masses and make them enjoy it. You know, river dance would never have happened without people like the the the, the, the chieftains. And uh, yes, Paddy played on uh, on the the Breathe album. I thought he uh, he's, he's all over it. He's he's yeah. he's he's all over it. And we went to Ireland to go and uh, and record them. Uh, and he was just, he was fantastic. We went with a, uh, it was an American uh, producer, um, uh, Richard. And when, when, when Paddy fired up his pipes, Richard said, it sounds like someone strangling a goose. <laughs> you wait, you wait till you hear what you can do with that yes. strangled goose. Yes. Uh, and he was just, he was exceptional. Yeah. So, like I said, I just feel like a, a piece of history goes with him that can't be replicated. You, like you said, there are other Irish bands and music will continue. But what the Chieftains did, the niche they carved for themselves, there was it's important. And I'm scared that it's going to be kind of lost to history. That worries me. Yeah, it's, it was so wonderful much. stuff. I, I, I toured with them in America. I did I did maybe eight, nine shows. Uh, across parts of America with them many years ago. And every night I would stand at the side of the stage with a, a stupid, you know, grin on my face or a tear in my eye. When they played a lament, it was just hauntingly beautiful. Or they played a jig or a reel and you just stood there and you could not stop tapping your feet. It was just you know, electric. It was wonderful. I totally agree. So we have some Patreon supporters that have thrown, you got quite a few questions from them. They brought in some pretty specific stuff and uh, I like a lot of it. I want to ask you specifically, Derek Mansfield wants to know about the writing and recording of The Damn Don't Cry by Visage, especially the pulsating staccato synth chords.
Do you recall if he was if you used a Roland Jupiter Four for that? Right. He's a keyboard okay, player too. Right, I, I, I get that. Yes, yeah. uh, that's that's <laughs> pretty tell. specific. Yeah, I think I think you'll find that I know what he's talking about. It's a kind of it's a it's a chord. It's got a, and 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 Billy was going through a phase of using this this kind of sequenced uh, patterns, but but rather than. Normally, a synthesizer sequence would go, you know, individual notes. But he was doing it with these pad chords, and would break the chords up and change the the notation each time he was he was playing something. So I think I think if I remember correctly, that was that was Billy, uh, because you'll find similar sounds and similar patterns on the quartet album, mm-hmm. which was around the same kind of period. So I didn't actually do that part and right. I don't think it was a Roland because we we didn't really have a lot of Roland equipment at the time um, right. I don't know it could, could be an Oberheim or something because Billy was using those kind of things at the time Okay, he was asking uh, also about the um, what Steve Strange brought to the table other than maybe vocals and fashion was he involved in the songwriting or was he kind of more the picturesque figurehead what what was his contribution steve was steve wasn't uh, musical in in, in any thought. real respect rusty and i wanted to put visage together to work with the favorite musicians uh one of them was billy curry keyboard player on ultravox uh and some of the guys from the band magazine uh you know john right. mcgee and barry adamson and and dave formula uh and we just wanted to make music that that was kind of european based music electronic for the dance clubs that him and Steve ran at the time, the Blitz and Billy's. Uh, and we needed someone to front it. And Rusty said, well, Steve here's a singer. He'll he'll do it. Uh, and Steve was just connected in a very different way. He's, I'm not saying his uh, his input was any less important. In fact, it was probably more important than, than some of the music um, because he was the face yeah. of visage he was the he was the guy in the, the videos he was connected to all the fashion sources and uh and the the up-and-coming young designers and the, the photographers and all of that graphic stuff um and that was incredibly important for that particular period uh so uh but it wasn't musical at all in fact i i used to have to sing the songs uh on, on a guide track and then play my voice <laughs> into his ear and then what would come out his mouth would be similar to what the phrasing and stuff that i would do because it was not musical in that kind of respect that makes sense all right this is a we're getting deep into the specifics on this one too one of our listeners matthew quinlan says that Basically, that he's always appreciated the packaging of a lot of your music. Lament had the screen-printed cover. Your debut album has an embossed sleeve. Uh, Cool giveaways at live shows. At the Lament tour, there was a program. Came with a cassette of the music from the Rivets ad they did for Levi's. The stage for the Monument tour was big. First of all, he wants you to know that he appreciated it. Secondly, was that extra mile important and were the record com- was the record company always on board or was it a battle to justify the extra cost it was always a battle um and it was important you know we we thought that what the music should go in should be as important as the music that went in it so working with people like you know peter saddle uh who did all the kind of manchester you know joy division and and, and whatever uh, factory stuff uh, was was really important, you know, getting the graphics right because the imagery was was all important. Uh, they should go side by side, just a kind of similar to when 
people started doing videos and not a lot of artists were involved in the making of the videos. They were just told what to do by a director. Well, we we ended up directing the videos as well, but we had very strong ideas of what we should do. So yes, the embossing, and I'm very pleased that you 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 um, you appreciate this stuff because we spent a long time doing it and a lot of money, of course. Uh, you know, putting black on black on the you know gloss black on on the matte black on the uh, the the uh, lament album, uh, the embossing, all of those things cost a huge amount of money because it meant that when they were making the sleeves for the 12-inch finals, um, they had to go through various processes. Uh, so they had to be run through a machine umpteen times, which meant a human had to take it up and make sure it was set up properly before it would go through and have the second embossing and all of that stuff. But for us, it was really important. Uh, and uh, the record company was great. They just used to say, well, that's going to cost you an extra... X amount per sleeve. And we'd go, okay, that's fine. Yeah. Because we wanted an object that you would feel great about owning, about picking up and touching and uh, and reading and and you know looking after. Yeah. Um, so it was important we did that. Yeah. I thought that was a great question. Um, okay, another one of our listeners, Philip Hopwood, he asked specifically around the Ultravox comeback album, Brilliant, which I like a lot too. It didn't seem to get a lot of traction in his mind. Um, I don't know what the traction was over here. When you make that kind of, you know, you get the band back together and you do the reunion album, and I assume there's a tour around it and stuff like that. Are you frustrated by the by the attention or lack thereof toward a, a project like that? Yeah, it's it's frustrating, but it's um, in reality, I suppose. You know, no, there aren't many people particularly interested in it. Um, you know, the hardcore fans, yes, I, I get that. It's a band that had been apart for twenty five years. Why? Why would radio uh, be, be remotely interested, um, except for maybe being curious? Uh, I think there's a there's a bad stigma attached to bands getting together after uh, a long period apart uh, and doing something new because it tends to it tends to look like it's a bank raid it tends to look like you've all got together you can't stand talking to each other or being in the same room uh, and you're doing it just for the money well it's as far from that as far removed from that as it could possibly be you know we did a classic ultra box we got together to go out and play all those songs one more time and uh, we spent six weeks getting the band up to speed to do a two-week tour uh, because we wanted to do it well. And we did. And we thoroughly enjoyed it. And we were approached during that by a major record label uh, asking if we would be interested in making an album. And, and we said no, because on which planet would you have to exist where after 25 years apart, you know, you'd still have something in common? Uh, and eventually, once someone drops that little seed into your brain, you start thinking about it. And the moment one of you says to the other, well, how would we do it if we were going to do something? <laughs> That's it. It's too late. You've already jumped in with both feet. So we found ourselves making an album and yeah. making a, a good album. We made yes. something that we were immensely proud of.
But as I say, there are two types of success. The first success is making something that as an artist you are proud of and you're happy with. The second success is commercial success. And that's got nothing to do with the artist. Yeah, It's got yeah. nothing to do with us. I can't make someone listen to it. I can't make radio play it. I can't make people aware of it other than just posting it on social media or whatever. Yeah. Um, so, yes, it's frustrating that it happens, but it's understandable yeah. that it happened. Do you foresee Ultravox doing anything else? I wouldn't think so. I mean, but then again, I said that, you know, 40 years ago, yeah. <laughs> whenever it was, you know, 30 years ago when we broke up, uh, I said it was never going to happen again, and it and it did. Uh, so I think never say never, but I'd say it's highly unlikely. You know, I'm I'm 68 now, and I'm the youngster in the band. Uh, so the reality is that, um, you know, we haven't, we haven't been in the same room. We haven't uh, really had any kind of dialogue since uh, since we last performed, and that's got to be seven or eight years ago. Yeah. So I'd say it's highly unlikely. Is there an appetite uh, in the UK to put Slick back together, to put Rich Kids back together? Steve's gone, so I don't know how you do Visage, but um, is that could you do that? I mean, are there you know you put Slick on a marquee somewhere and people are going to show? I, I um no, I don't think so. Oh, okay. Um, I I I don't see any point. Uh, Ultravox was my band, you know. Slick and the Rich Kids, uh, you know, had the had the uh, you know, the moments. Uh, but I, the moment I joined Ultravox, uh, we we had nothing, you know. We had a broken band who were just dropped by the label who owed them owed the label a fortune. Uh, we put our hands in our pockets to take out whatever pennies we had to enable us to get into a rehearsal room for a few hours to see if what we what we thought might work would work. And the moment we plugged in with the very basic equipment we had, it sounded magnificent. So that moment there was my band. That was it. I was home. I'd, I'd found whatever it was I'd been looking for, you know, in, in Bono's words. That's, I'd, <laughs> found, I'd found it and I was there. So that was the, that was the one thing that I'd go back and look at doing okay. again. Okay. But anything prior to that or anything else, not really. There's okay. of no interest in me. Curious about that. Um, okay, let me read this real quick. Martin, another one of ours, uh, Patreon supporters, had a question around Thin Lizzy. And you, um, you know, having to hop on having to hop on the Concord, I believe, to fly over to the States and learn on a Walkman all the songs on your way over. Um, he was curious how long it took before you kind of got the grips with what you were playing and feel like you sort of belonged or had settled into the band? It, it really only took a couple of days, um, I have to say. Uh, uh, fortunately uh, for me, uh, uh, Lizzie were opening up. Um, there were special guests to Journey. So Lizzie were only doing, you know, 50 minutes or an hour maybe. So that's, I don't know, 10, 12 songs. Yeah. Uh, and it doesn't take that long to learn 10 or 12 songs. The hard part was... Because of the nature of Thin Lizzy, every song had a harmony guitar part in it, and 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 they were almost interchangeable. So, yeah. So making sure I was playing the right part, right. Uh, the right harmony part in every song was a uh, was the tall order, but it felt very natural. You know, as I say, I'm a guitar player first and foremost, and I'd always loved the very early Thin Lizzy when they were a three piece when Philip wrote really beautifully haunting poetry basically you know to laid on top of rock music so i'd always been a big fan and for a 
for a, a you know a kid who had never been to the states, you know, flying out in Concord to go and play with a band that he had known since he was like sixteen, uh, was just you know orgasmic. It was just too much. <laughs> so I I got my my feet were under the table very very quickly. I, I you know, did a lot of work and made sure that I didn't ruin it for them. Uh, but all in my heart, I knew I was going back to Ultravox. So I was there as a hired gun to finish the tour while they looked for another guitar player, a permanent replacement uh, to Gary Moore. And I, I was going straight back to Ultravox to, to carry on writing the VN album. Okay. You know, you saying, you talking about Phil, it's occurring to me just in our conversation, Phil, Patty, John McGee, uh, Steve Strange, how many close friends of yours have passed? I mean, that's true for a lot of us. As we get older, it's a part of life. But it is, uh, unfortunately, it's a part of life. Yeah. Um, it's odd. I have to say it's very odd. It's, it's very odd when you start seeing your heroes yeah. go. I mean, you're sitting there with a great photograph of Bowie behind you. And and, and I, I could never have envisioned a day when uh, I'd be on the planet and he wouldn't. I know. Um, because he was a hero to everyone. Whether, whether you liked his music or not, his attitude changed music. You know, for the better. So if you're an R&B artist or a hip hop artist or whatever, you owe a huge note of respect to David Bowie, because he did it in a way that no one else did it. He he broke the barriers. So so that stuff happens, and it's it's very sad, but it's the way life is. Yeah. You just have to kind of carry on doing what you do and hope that you leave, you know, an interesting enough enough legacy when when it's your turn. Yeah. One. Yeah. So. I hadn't heard the Uvox album before getting ready to talk to you. I don't know how. I have all the others. And I was listening to Sweet Surrender. And immediately I'm thinking, did Mark King cop the baseline in this for Lessons in Love? And I wondered, you have a relationship with Mark King. Am I way overthinking this? Did he play on that album? Did you notice that when you heard Lessons in Love? I think we'd, um, I know what I had, you know, I've, I've never put the two together, but yes, oh. that there's, um, uh, there's there's an essence of that album. Kind of that, a galloping um, bass line. Yeah, the galloping bass line. The yeah. Do, 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 yeah. I <laughs> hadn't struck me. No, he, had, he didn't play uh-huh. on it. But again, I think possibly because I'd been working with Mark uh, uh, and whatever. Um, I, I, and I think at the time, Ultravox were a bit lost. Uh, you know, I'd been away from the band for two years when we got back together again. You know, Band Aid and Live Aid and whatever took me away from the band for a long time. And we had changed a lot as individuals. 
and we weren't a coherent band. Uh, we had moments of of clarity during that record, uh, you know, all fall down and with the chieftains for me. But they were very diverse. It was a very splintered record. And I think we were lost. And when I listen to it now, I mean, I can't imagine why we were putting horn sections on things. And I think it was, we were floundering. Uh, but I hadn't noticed the, the thing. And I, I think possibly the fact that I'd been working with Mark and other musicians, that some of that filtered into what Ultravox were Probably. doing at the time. Probably. And maybe it shouldn't have. Well, it, I don't know. I just noticed it. Uh, recently getting ready to talk to you and it was so it struck I'm a huge level 42 fan too so it struck me immediately it was Mark's birthday today it is that's right it is I saw that on social media you're right that's great um okay let me see I've got just a couple more first of all did you turn down uh being the the lead singer of the Sex Pistols I don't know what it was I turned down um but it was the Sex Pistols okay they never got around to asking me what I did and that's oh. the reason I turned it down. They, they, okay. they asked me if I wanted to join the band they were putting together. And it was um it was Bernie Rhodes and uh, Malcolm McLaren uh-huh. in a in a in a very dodgy looking car in Glasgow. And what they were doing in Glasgow was and I, I told Steve Jones this when I was on his program a few years back, uh-huh. and he th- he was hysterical. Um they were selling some slightly hot uh music equipment from the boot of the car. Um so I didn't join the pistols, but I bought an amplifier. Um, oh, that's great. <laughs> yeah, and Steve Jones said, the buggers, because I stole that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's good. Uh, and one other thing, I read this somewhere, and I can't even remember. Mark, uh, Mick Ronson, um, did he audition for, to play with you, and you decided he wasn't the right fit? And I just am imagining, what must it be like to tell Mark, Mick Ronson, no thanks? Like, uh, thanks, Mick Ronson, but uh, no, we're going to go a different direction. It was horrendous. I asked, I asked Mick if he would, if he would play um, on the the gift tour. Mm-hmm. I was going to tour the world uh, in two months, mm-hmm. you know, whistle stop tour, and uh, and he agreed to do it. And I, I, I'm a huge Mick Ronson fan, huge Mick Ronson fan, and and it just didn't work. Uh, all the way through rehearsals, uh, it, it, the sound, his sound changed all the time, and 
One minute he'd be playing it on slide guitar, next minute he'd be playing something else, and uh, and it sounded like a country music. It didn't sound anything like I'm saying. Make it. I need that big bang, that fantastic sustain, and the, the stuff. And you know, and he just couldn't or wouldn't do it. And I I suspect that maybe um, he, he wasn't focused or whatever. But I had to call him up and and just say, you know, it's this is breaking my heart. And but we can't go out like this. We're going out in like four days, and and this is a disaster. And he was lovely. He just he said, look, I totally understand. It's fine. It's fine. And then I've got I never saw him again. Um, oh. he, he died, but he could he, he may have been ill at that yeah. point and I didn't yeah. know. Uh, but it was heartbreaking for me to to have to do something like that because he was he was a hero. He still is. I bet. Yeah, he's a hero to me too. Um, okay, do you are you, how sad are you that you didn't win Celebrity Master Chef? I watched that on YouTube. <laughs> and you were in the final. Are you really a good cook? What's the story? <laughs> I I thought I thought when I was younger that being being able to knock some food together would impress the girls, uh-huh. uh, which which it did uh-huh. <laughs> for a while. And I, I don't, I, I'm not one for, for uh, you know, uh, celebrity, you know, television stuff. Uh-huh. But that program I've watched since it was a tiny, cheap, you know, Sunday uh-huh. afternoon program here in the UK. Uh-huh. And I've loved it uh, all the way through. So, uh, I, listen, I think, I think I held my own. I was, yes, I was okay. My wife and I, <laughs> like the rest of the world, are addicted to uh, the Great British Baking Show. And they oh, need yeah, to do a celebrity version and bring you on to make a cake or something like that. I'm, 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 I think my celebrity television days are over. Really? <laughs> yeah, I think so. I think I've drawn a line under that. I loved it. Okay, last question. Um, a lot of bands and artists, you, Simple Minds, you too, Tears for Fears, in the late 80s, early 90s, are really getting into the big music. You know, everyone's making these grand sweeping just, uh, artistic statements you did that too with uh, answers to nothing and pure to some degree what was going on that was sweeping everyone up into this you know we everyone starts as a synth band and then that second album they have to prove they can play guitars like human league and abc did but then over the course of that decade they want to incorporate everything there's celtic influences there it's just is getting bigger why what was going on well, I think I think you've got to understand that um, you know stadium rock and certainly in in Europe was was only for you know, the, the biggest bands. You yeah. know, it was maybe something that was a bit more uh, regular in in America. Uh, you know, open air stadiums and stuff. So Live Aid changed all that. Uh, so Live Aid was what's eighty six. Um, so I think I think a lot of those bands got a taste for that and thought, oh well, we're the next generation. We're the next. You know, big band. We're the next U two. U two obviously had the sights set on that. It was Live Aid that that made the transition. That was the platform for them. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Simple Minds kind of tried to follow follow suits, and it became a kind of big rock anthemic yeah. uh, anthemic thing. So yeah, I, I suspect that's maybe got something to do with it. The the old dinosaurs had had been moved over, and the new young dinosaurs were coming to take over. That's right. Uh, well, Midge, I love you so much. You've been such a big part of my life for 30 plus years. Um, I know with other people, it goes back further, but for me, it's been a solid 30 and I just love you. Thank you for being you. You're one of the I'm best there's ever been. 
Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. All right. There you have it. The great mid-year. I, I just love him so much. He's such a gracious, humble, sweet guy. Seems like it anyway to me. Doesn't it to you? Um, I wanted to close it out with another song off of Fragile because we didn't really get to talk about it as much as I would have liked. I had an hour and it started a little bit late and I kept him a little bit long to make up for it. And there were just, like I said before, every band he was in, every song he's written, every charitable thing he's ever done, his books, his albums, all of them deserve like their own hour. So it was so difficult to condense it all into one, one conversation that was going to be unique. You know, but anyway, Fragile came out a couple of years ago, 2014, I think. And this is a song called Become off of that album. And by all means, check out uh, Orchestrated and check out the tour. Unzoomed and Face to Face is happening right now in the U.S. I believe it's only a few dates in the eastern United States, probably over the next like three weeks. And then in early 2022, it's the Vision and Voice. I hope I got that right tour and that one as far as i can see this the dates that i see are only in europe but you can follow him on facebook and social media and you can learn all about it okay next week's guest uh it's guests plural it's another twofer i am to, i have talked with two pretty great legendary producers one of them is especially legendary the other one is very very good and they're both kind of on the shorter side. So we're gonna put them together like we did recently with the Vapors and the Cruzados and do a twofer. So I know you guys love producer episodes. That's what's coming up next week. A twofer of producers, legendary producers, okay? Uh, huge thanks as always to Jan the Man Makiewicz, my right-hand man, for everything that you do. You guys know how to follow us on Facebook. You can like our page. You can send us a message on there, or you can send us an email at thehustlepod.gmail.com, or you can find us on Twitter at thehustlepod. Uh, Jan and I recorded our recap, finally, for the third quarter, and that may be coming out later this week. I don't know. It just depends on um, how busy Jan is. Okay? Thanks, everybody. We love you. 